Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. And I've got a fantastic interview. Yes, because A, it's a fantastic day and B, it's a fantastic topic. It's a topic that is way out there. Um, I've been honored and humbled in my life a few times when I came across people in my work who have had such severe trauma to their bodies that indeed their mind, their soul, or whatever we want to call it, decided to actually leave their body for a bit and have a little look around and think, well, that meat suit actually pretty much had it. Um, so let's have a little look around. What I'm talking about are near-death experiences. And some of you might think, oh my God, do, 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 do. he has lost it. He has seen the wrong TV shows far too many times. Um, yeah, the problem is there are so many patients who are seriously sick and who then describe something that is out there. And I've got, I'm, I'm fascinated about it. And everyone else out there, essentially, even if they find it corny, they are fascinated about it. That is what, what, what people believe. Is there an afterlife? Is there, is, you know, all that. And so I thought I'd bring Gregory Shushan on board here today because Gregory has made it his life mission. He is a, he is a, a historian of religion and he's a man who has pretty much dedicated his life to, to examining what is out there. What are the themes that run through all these stories that are there around the world about something that comes after us or something that is out there that is beyond what we can understand now. So um, this is going to be a in very interesting experience for me today to talk to Gregory. So Gregory, welcome to my show. Thanks, Stefan. That's, uh, that's quite a build up. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do, because like, like all of us, we have got we've got a mission, we have got a mission. And that mission typically comes from trauma, that mission typically comes from a, a point where we had an aha moment where we had a, a strange experience that didn't leave us alone. So from then on, we were compelled to do something. And that is sort of when you find your true self. For me, it was rehab, and then exploring a life that was so foreign to me, because it 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 actually meant something. It integrity and self love and and authenticity, all these things, actually, truly, are important and are core beliefs now in me. Mm. Where for near death experiences, again, you wouldn't have just sort of woke up one day as a child and think, "Mommy, you know what." I think I'm going to be a historian of religion and I'm going to <laughs> have a look a bit closer at near-death experiences. New, said no child ever. Um, so, <laughs> what was your catalyst? What, was, what brought you um, into that topic? Funnily enough, um, I did sort of as a child say. <laughs> you I did? did. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> okay, I saw I stand corrected. One child said that. <laughs> no, it wasn't exactly that, but... Um, I did always have an interest in, you know, paranormal stuff. And I had books about strange phenomena and ghosts. And um, I had one collection of things like you had um, accounts of things like they would, it would open up a, a stone that they found underground and a live frog would be in it. And it was thousands of years old or um, a rain of blood in medieval Europe, you know, all these just bizarre things. <laughs> and, and in that, there was a small chapter on near-death experiences and, so all this stuff was was weird and interesting, and I was a little bit skeptical even as a kid. Um, but the stuff about ghosts and reincarnation, and especially near death experiences, kind of fired my imagination. Huh. Um, so that sort of planted the seed. And then um, my mom also was an influence, and I had an aunt who was an influence. My mom was um, she did her um, research, her postdoc, uh, postgraduate research on William Blake and the psychedelic experience, huh. and she. Um, you know, was interested in Aldous Huxley and perennial philosophy of these ideas that, um, you know, all religions of the world have the same common ideas to them. Um, Carl Jung, collective and conscious, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I had an aunt who would give me books about witchcraft and Rosicrucianism and all. So I had this, you know, 
very strange kind of uh, conditioning at an early age. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it was it was not really a um, you know personal traumatic sort of catalyst, although uh, thinking about it, um, you know, having a, a somewhat difficult childhood with um, divorce and separation from parents and you know different forms of difficulties, I should say, um, it was a sort of escape and it was a it was a, it, I think allowed me to think, okay, what is there beyond this present moment um, that gives the wider life and what I'm going through a, a deeper sort of meaning? Um, what is there beyond this? that I can potentially look forward to, or at least mm. that, um, yeah, gives it meaning beyond the present. And whilst, of course, there is this thought that is our life is our life as we know it, and then when I die, there might be something else. I'm, I see it as something actually wider and bigger. If I had told my great-grandmother when she was young, that one day she's going to put uh, something that is called food, which actually is in plastic, and you put it into a box, and you press a thing called a button, and then three minutes later, it's going to be hot and cooked. She would have thought, I have eaten some really bad food, and I've got <laughs> a bit of a poisoning. Nowadays, microwaves are absolutely normal for us. Right. So this is something that we have learned is out there, but we can't see it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, are there not other energy forms out there that we can perceive that some of us are working on understanding better and getting more enlightened about, and therefore maybe can start working with it even before we die? Mm. So therefore, I think this is a continuum. And therefore, I'm so intrigued to listen to you. So when you I mean, there's one thing, I mean, most of us like, like spooky kind of stories, that's classic for children. Mm -hmm. I think I had my little collection there too, of, of similar books. And, and even now, well, crying out loud, what am I watching? Supernatural. <laughs> I love, <laughs> you know, Sammy and Dean Winchester. Come on. Yes. So even <laughs> nowadays, I'm intrigued yeah. about the ghosts and all that here. So yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just laughing about the coincidence. I didn't even click onto that here. <laughs> um, so, but here we are. So we are all excited about it. But then you actually chose to go further. How mm. did you go further? And why? What drove you? There's one thing of, of reading and dreaming and escaping reality, and then one mm. thing to make it to your profession. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a good point. Um, it was really a variety of things. I mean, for one thing, it is, you know, it's an innately interesting subject, um, what happens to us when we die. It's one of the, you know, the possibly the biggest question mm. of, you know, being a human. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What happens when we die? Another one is, you know, are we alone in the universe if there's... Yes you know, other intelligent life out there, whatever. Yeah, yes, um, but it's, uh, I guess what, what fired my imagination and, and my kind of intellectual curiosity was specifically about near-death experiences was that people who, um, in case, you know, some of the listeners or viewers don't, don't know, um, near-death experiences happen when somebody apparently dies or in many cases are actually declared clinically dead for a short period. And then they come back to life, or they revive, and then they tell about these experiences that happened supposedly in another world. Um, they go through darkness and then they come out into a bright light. Um, they meet a being of light, deceased relatives. They have feelings of oneness and transcendence and peace. Um, they're, then they reach a, a point that, that they can't pass, a, a barrier or a limit. And then they're told that they have to return or sometimes they decide to return. Um, often they don't want to return. And, and when they do, you know, they, they come back and they see their body lying there and think, oh God, I don't want to get into that horrible, cold, painful thing. Um, and then they do, they're somehow, they have to because either the medical technique has, has, has forced them to come back or, um, you know, whatever process of being sent back makes them revive. Um, and then they typically are transformed basically for the rest of their lives where they, they've had a sort of spiritual transformation and they uh, consider themselves um, to be more uh, generally, you know, philanthropic and 
compassionate and kind and just basically had this personality transformation. So, um, and what really intrigued me was reading accounts of this where people are saying very similar things in different parts of the world. And, and one of the catalysts was there was a book by a medieval English scholar um, named Carol Zaleski, and, and she wrote a book comparing um, medieval accounts of other world journeys from um, mostly Christian monks and nuns uh, with near-death experiences. And so I thought, wow, it's not just modern people having them in mm-hmm. 20th century Western cultures. Um, this is going back to, to medieval times. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of put that aside, you know, that's interesting, but I have the other parts of my life to pursue. And um I'm going to become an Egyptologist. So, so I was doing an um, Egyptology degree at University College London. And we we're reading texts like the Book of the Dead and the Coffin texts and Pyramid texts. And these are um, books that were intended to guide the, the soul of the deceased through the afterlife and essentially ensure that they have a good death and that they um, can overcome the perils and obstacles and become a sort of uh, individuated, enlightened, divinized soul who who lives with the sun god and and becomes one with the god of the underworld. This kind of transcendent, all-encompassing experience. So, so I'm reading all this and I'm thinking, hang on, um, leaving the body, traveling through darkness, coming <laughs> into a world of light, meeting a being of light, um, seeing the corpse, which in in my interpretation. Um, the soul of the dead is identified with the god Osiris, who is portrayed as a corpse in the under, underworld. So encountering that corpse is account, encountering your own corpse. Mm. And that enables you to realize that you're dead, yet still alive, and then to keep proceeding through the next stage in the afterlife and join the sun god and all that. And the sun god, of course, is a being of light. Um, there's deceased relatives there. So I just started thinking, Okay, there's not near-death experiences in ancient Egypt. There's no accounts of them, but um, it sure seems like their afterlife beliefs um, were, you know, informed by knowledge of a near-death experience. Uh, intriguing to see the similarities in all these stories, isn't it? Mm. And it's 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 equally. I mean, when you read about it, you can say, yeah, okay, someone had a little bit too much. Uh, they were writing here, right? Um, but again, when you're talking about drugs, there are certainly the, the indigenous tribes around the world who are choosing to use certain mushrooms, certain uh, plants, uh, certain experiences that put their body into a trance to actually seek that, to actually go right. out there. And equally, when you, uh, when you look at, at such experiences, are they similar? If you were to speak to a a young um, a young um, um, indigenous American who has gone through such a manhood procedure, are they similar? Are these experiences similar to what you describe? They are, yeah. Um, not all the time, and it depends on the culture. I should back up a little bit and say, um, you know, one of the main findings of of my research has been that near death experiences do occur apparently in all times and all places around the world, but that they are very culturally formed. So you're not gonna have an example of a Buddhist in you know, 10th century China uh, seeing Jesus, you know, that's just not gonna happen. Um, and by the same token, you're not gonna have you know, uh, an evangelical Christian in Alabama seeing <laughs> the Hindu God of the dead, Yama, you know? So, oh, beautiful. Okay, there's so many memes that come to my mind. Oh, God, stop it, stop it. I'm a very cynical man, forgive me. No, no. But it is actually very true, isn't it? So yeah. the, the cultures, and that is what we super uh, superimpose, I guess, onto it. Because right. naturally, if you see light, you think, wow, what is that? And then you think your brain automatically tries to find an answer, or your soul tries right. to find an right. answer. And if you're... If you were raised a, a Christian, then you're going to think you're going to come back and you're going to say, I saw a light and it was Jesus and he was welcoming me. And if a researcher says, how do you know it was Jesus? They'll say, I just knew, you know, uh, exactly. or, or it was the Buddha or whoever. And then the atheists are going to say, I saw 
the divine being of light and they're not going to give it a name. So, Mm. but they still saw this being of light that was radiating Mm. love and joy and acceptance and and all that. So, um, but even with that, I mean, even just like a particular theme, like the being of light, that's not even universal in all near-death experiences. Uh And um, this is one of the things that's kind of kept my interest going in it is not just the similarities, but why are they so different? And and um, how can they be so similar and so different at the same time? And could you give for, us a spread? Because I, I, a spread of of, yeah. of of what is happening? Because I certainly had guests on the show who have gone or who have had near death experiences, and right. for them it, it was uh, all of them was light as the mm-hmm. the center of their experience. Right. How they then reframed their belief system around it is a different story. Um, yeah. But so are there other other uh, manifestations? Sure. Yeah. Some sometimes um, you know people will say. I'm thinking of you mentioned Native American cultures. A lot of times there will be um, they'll describe some kind of deity, which maybe they will give a name um, according to their own traditions, but they won't specifically say that it was radiating light. So whether that was just um, taken for granted, because maybe in their minds or in their culture, of course, the deity is radiating light. Maybe right. they just didn't see it as worth mentioning. But um, but in other cases, people just meet a deceased relative and don't have a being of light. In some cases, they'll have a panic panoramic life review. Sometimes they won't. Um, so it's really the way I look at it is it's, it's this you know repertoire of maybe 20, 25 different experience types that the mind or the soul or whatever yeah. draws from depending on the individual and um there's been all kinds of speculation about you know is this because of the duration of the experience um the type yeah. of death the type of yeah. trauma um how long the person was unconscious or yeah. temporarily dead so there's still a lot of mysteries about um you know what's going on with all this stuff sure. so a good example is um in only in small scale societies, so you know, indigenous cultures in you know Native Americans, Pacific Africa, only in these cultures do we find examples of the soul walking along the path to the next world. Um, in the accounts we're familiar with, you um, rise above the body and go through the tunnel into into, into the brightness. Um, so that's a, a really interesting example that seems to be not just based on specific cultures, but the type of social organization so these small scale community societies walk along a road um, and and uh and we don't so and then also another one is the reason for being sent back to your body can vary so um in a lot of uh, eastern cultures uh there's a, it's a case of mistaken identity where we'll say um you know i'll go to the other world and i'll meet whatever divine being and they'll say actually we got the wrong Gregory Shushan, <laughs> we, we want the one who lives. Um, you know, oh, yeah, that's a bit frustrating. <laughs> yeah, forever. Um, and they send me back and then the other one dies. So whereas uh, in most, you know, NDEs, the most of our, you know, your listeners and viewers will be familiar with, it's more often the case of the being of light sending the person back because, um, you know, they need to care for a loved one or they didn't fulfill some goal or ambition that they had in their life um, or they need to go and you know fulfill some kind of spiritual um purpose so so that's a very different so you know the return is is the same being told to return is the same but the reason of it is very different so is there raises a lot of questions (laughs) oh exactly exactly right Uh, the, the question for me automatically is uh if you if i am experiencing something that i automatically interpret as a magic trans not magic as a transformation that now makes me more empathic and a better human being that is actually a beautiful thing um when i if i was to experience something where someone has a letter and said oh shit sorry we made a mistake <laughs> go back <laughs> you're the wrong guy yeah. Um, yeah. i'm not sure that i take much sense out of that is there <laughs> what are the flow-on effects on the behavior of people um that uh let's say for example in the in the more eastern cultures is there a mm. similar um catalyst in in behavior change noticeable that's a good question. Yeah. Um, 
in most of the historical examples, it's really hard to, to figure that out. But um, I think it's implied because of the fact that usually there is some kind of positive message or a positive outcome or a premonition of something that's going to happen that enhances the community's life or whatever yeah. in some sort of way. So, so um, which is another interesting thing because even the positive transformation can be very culturally situated. Huh. Um, but it does seem to almost always be something that's positive to benefit the self or benefit the community more often in yeah. you know, kind of uh, community-based societies. Okay. So for example, you know, there, um, there's an example from Africa, I think one for a Native American one too, where the person was told to come back and uh, tell those people to stop wife beating, like wife beating was no longer an acceptable practice. Wow. Um, so it was before that, unfortunately. And then also to um, stop uh, giving lots and lots of funerary offerings to souls of the dead because they were wasting resources because they're you know sacrificing animals and burning it for the gods and the deities and the souls. And uh, so the message was don't do that anymore. Save your resources for the living, essentially. So, huh. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so I, it's almost like whatever the community needs or, or and if the community doesn't need anything because we're not a community, so much of a community-based society. We're very much about the self and self-development. Um, so it makes sense in a way that the positive message for people in a Western society is going to be about the self and how can you improve yourself, which in turn, you know, hopefully would have a knock-on effect oh. to improving the community. So, huh. Okay, I did not. <laughs> I did not expect that. I wasn't aware of of the different versions of yeah of near-death experiences out there. So you say there are 20, 25 different ones that are- Different coined. elements, yeah, that, yeah, that people draw from, yeah. I wouldn't I, there's not 25 different um, typical near-death experiences. There's, you know, 25 or whatever different sub-experiences that make up any given near-death experience. Well, what I meant. if 25 people were to go to the same party, and you ask afterwards those 25 people one might have been in the kitchen and there was a couple who was extremely in love and gentle and beautiful and kissing each other you would say wow this is a really lovely party there was lots of love going on whilst yeah. another person was at the same party in the front and there was a fight going on they would say bloody well that was an intense party god oh, i didn't don't want to go there anymore and alcohol is bad for you um so interesting. Both were at the same exactly. party. So yeah. I see that we yeah. we just or, don't or even know. if even if you're in the same room in the same party. Correct. Um, if you're in a bad mood, um, yep. if you, if you haven't had enough sleep, um, whatever it is, you can come back and say, "God, that party was horrible, and everybody was so boring, and I just wanted to get the hell out of there." Where somebody else might have said, "Actually, I really connected with these people, and I was in a great mood," and you know. Mm. So, so much has to do with, um, you know, psychology and perspective right. and mood and, and all of that. Which then, which then begs the questions, are there different, uh, different experiences described based upon the amount of suffering? Let's take two extremes. Let's say uh, a, um, a very happy person that is involved in a very sudden catastrophic motor vehicle accident um, mm. and has a near-death experience compared with God forbid, a concentration camp uh, inmate who has seen death and suffering and everything to the extreme as, a, as his daily bread. Mm. Are there any comparisons there? I don't think there are. Um, I don't think that specific kind of research has been done. Um, it does remind me of a, a case from ancient Rome of, of two uh, Christian martyrs. Um, Perpetua and Sartorius. Perpetua became a, a saint later, um, and they were in a um, prison cell awaiting, you know, being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum or whatever. And they'd been uh, through through you know lots of deprivation, extended periods of, of darkness and near starvation and all this stuff. And um, they apparently, well, first they had a few visions bef before they had an NDE, but then they had a joint NDE where they they both died. And they um, connected in the after afterlife, and uh, saw each other there, and came back to their bodies. But um, that was, um, 
I mean, that was a joyous experience and it was an escape from them and it gave them hope. So, so it wasn't like the deprivations and horror they were suffering resulted in a negative experience. It was, it was kind of just the contrary. So mm. I would say um, the degree to which, you know, psychology and mood and perspective impacts your NDE is maybe, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to give anyone, you know, ideas about this, but it might just be, you know, um, your attitudes towards death, your level of, of fear. Um, if you are, you know, a very negative person who, who's going to be angry about leaving life, um, hostile to anything that's spiritual happening, mm. who knows what, you know, whatever kind of negative influence you, you might have on the experience, um, especially from a, a Tibetan Buddhist perspective, you know, they would, they would say that you very much, um, you know, create this afterlife process as it's happening. And, and they kind of, um, mm. you know, encourage you to die consciously. And there's even forms of, you know, dream yoga and things like this to practice what it's going to be like when you die so you can do it with um with consciousness and peace and uh and help to steer the experience in a positive way wow <laughs> okay i'm a man who tries to be prepared for all eventualities but i have never considered that okay. yeah <laughs> damn uh, mainly but just briefly, I'm... going before you, before you get too sidetracked, going back to your earlier question about shamanism, yeah, um, yeah, that's a, another interesting point because obviously shamanic experiences are going to vary between cultures, um, and so do the techniques of the shaman getting to the point where he or she travels into the next world yeah. and um, you know uh, is able to interact with spirit beings there. So, for example, some will will take you know, massive quantities of drugs, you said like psilocybin, psychedelics. Um, some will do sort of repetitive dancing and chanting to the to the point where they they collapse. Mm. Um, but the whole time the um the seed is planted in their minds that this is what this is the intention of what they're going to do. So mm. so when they collapse, they know that they're going to leave their bodies and and go to the other world. So it's partly what um, you know, in ancient Greek, they, they had practice uh, dream um, dream incubation, where you would go sleep in a temple, and you know incubate, cultivate a, a, um, a premonition dream from the gods. So it's it's sort of similar to that. Um, in some cases, they would actually uh, you know club themselves to death um, in order to bring about an NDE, and or or other kinds of processes that. Um, means they probably actually were genuine in the NDEs rather than a kind of uh, facsimile or, you know, replication. Goodness gracious. Okay. You know, Talk yeah. about playing with fire here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason for doing this, by the way, was to uh, rescue the soul of somebody who is in danger of death. So if, if there was somebody in the community who was dying, um, the shaman would leave the body and basically run after that person in spirit form and you know coax them back and and heal their soul in order to bring them back to the body which means that that person wakes up and reports a near death experience um, in which the shaman came and got them so <laughs> wow yeah i don't think that too many of these stories were repeated because if you get so many hits on the head i'm sorry there is uh... <laughs> that kind yeah yeah but then again this is these were these are very fundamental beliefs these are and these are this coming this is coming from societies which are not distracted by their cell phones and which are not watching tally and where life is very different and where mm. maybe uh, existential questions are not a matter of uh, dr phil on on television but actually of sitting around a campfire at night and watching the stars and and pondering mm -hmm. what is life about etc so yeah. these are we are talking very very different things so whilst i shake my head in disbelief um i'm privileged to sit in a, in a warm room here where there are no dangerous things around me and and where i don't have a subsistence living where every day mm -hmm. i might actually die due to either starvation or a wild animal or a tribe that doesn't like me mm -hmm. so it is yeah. 
we need to put that into perspective and obviously therefore right. also the belief systems and the ways people went about trying to find solutions towards mm. these existential questions right and and the fact that another difference is that their knowledge if if you want to call it knowledge um, yeah. rather than beliefs is based on their experiences so yeah. um you know none of us have the experience of you know, presumably none of us <laughs> have the experience of, you know, deliberately bringing about a shamanic journey to the other world, unless, sure. you know, maybe, maybe a few of us have done ayahuasca or ketamine or whatever. Um, but that's not part of our, you know, our experiential mm. toolbox of knowledge. True. Whereas with them, that's just, um, that's what they do. You know, there are certain members of, of society that that's their job, essentially. So, so the, the places that they're getting their knowledge are, are very different from the places we get ours. Mm, very good. Very, very wise point. So if there is already such a connection with a world that maybe we don't understand, are near-death experiences more common in indigenous people? Or are um, they, is there any data out there? I would say they're not, no, because um, the shamanic practices are, and they sort of make up for the near, lack of near-death experiences. Um, in fact, in Australia, it's a really good example because um, amongst uh, Aboriginal people there, um, there are very few near-death experiences that I could find that were not in a shamanic context. So it was almost like, even when a near-death experience is reported, that person is considered a shaman uh, by virtue of the fact that they had the experience. And so then they're able to do it repeatedly whenever they want to. So, right. so it was almost, um, the actual NDE was not even that, that relevant. It was more like the ability and the skill to be able to do that was the thing that was, that was most important. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think because of the lack of metal, medical technology, um, resuscitation technology in, in these different oh, cultures, right. um, the experiences are, are actually not as common as, mm. as they are currently. But, mm. but it's interesting because um, with Native American examples, so I'll, I'll show you this. This is the book that I uh, did this research in. It's called uh, Near-Death Experiences in Indigenous Religions. Yeah. And that's comparing um, Native American, Pacific, and African accounts um, mostly, well, going back to the earliest or sort of um, 16th century, going up to maybe 1930s or 40s, trying to focus on periods when they weren't totally converted to Christianity or, or Islam in the case of Africa. Mm. Um, so in just the Native American examples alone, I found something like 70 near-death experiences or, or references to them uh, from across the whole continent, um, which was, you know, that's a lot. Just to put that in perspective, before I did this research, there was, you know, maybe eight or ten NDEs right. in in small scale societies around the world that were right. even known. So, um, so I found seventy in just Native Americans. I found almost forty in the Pacific, but then in Africa, across the entire continent, I found like maybe eight or twelve. I can't remember, but it was a very low number in comparison. So, um, it wasn't so much that they're not happening in in uh different cultures but they're not being reported and what i figured out was um with africa as well as in micronesia mm -hmm. and to some extent in, in australia um there were just sort of cultural um restrictions on ndes being reported so for example in africa they if somebody comes back from the dead um in you know western modern culture we're going to you know, break down in tears of joy and say, oh my God, my beloved one came back to life and we're going to embrace them and celebrate. And it's going to be like, if not a miracle, it's going to be an amazing, yeah. you know, event. Yeah. Whereas um, in some of these cultures, the attitude was more like, uh-oh, um, that person was dead. Now they've stood up and they're walking around and they must be possessed. Um, a sorcerer must have either brought them to life um, as a zombie or they're possessed by an evil spirit. Get the rocks, get the sticks. That's right. <laughs> Stephen and, King, um, Pet Cemetery. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and there are a lot of examples of that that yeah. I found that. Um, Interesting. You know, 
people who um it was actually perilous to to come back to life because you'd very likely be killed again or um, driven off into the forest or whatever. Huh. So there wasn't much context for even reporting a near-death experience, let alone for like, huh. you know, wow. the, the, the reports of the, of the person who had the near-death experience becoming part of the culture's afterlife beliefs and being seen as this wonderful spiritual kind of thing. Damn, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but now that you spell it out, of course it makes sense um, because we the, we are so afraid, and we are so afraid of 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 so much. And in a more, more I don't want to call it primitive, but in uh, please forgive me for using the word, but let's call it a primitive tribe um, where there are different belief systems. Yes, you can imagine that something like that is interpreted as as something. Uh, akin to hell and devil and whatever uh, words those tribes would use to describe mm -hmm. such a such an occurrence. Yeah, although even in, you know, if you look at different kinds of psychical research and parapsychology, and there's accounts of poltergeists, and yeah. you know, the Catholic Church believes in possession. Um, so yeah, okay. you know, there, there's. So I think it's. Uh, it might just be that um, because of those fears. Uh, you know, they, they haven't opened up to, to other possibilities of what that return from death could be. But it's a really interesting because even within Africa, there's, you know, there's always um, exceptions that prove the rule. So a lot of Bantu societies, for example, um, their mythologies are more similar to the to near-death experiences, you know, their afterlife beliefs and myths. Um, there are more accounts of near-death experiences and their shamanic practices involve souls traveling to the other world. Whereas a lot of the other African cultures that don't have them, um, their shamanic practices are about, you know, avoiding possession and evil spirits and, mm. and this sort of thing. So it's this whole, you know, cultural complex of, of how they're received. And, and um, it's just, I think, depends on which path each culture takes um, and, and which thing they decide to focus on. So, I mean, you know, Catholics, they, um, you know, they believe in possession and the devil and all this stuff, but they near-death experiences haven't really been integrated into Catholicism either. Um, just as a kind of example, I, I don't know if the Pope has made any decrees about them or not, um, but it's, you know, you don't really hear about them. Whereas in, in Mormonism, they have. You know, Mormonism, um, NDEs are quite a, um, you know, accepted, valid, important thing because not only did a lot of their founders and early pioneers have NDEs, but it proves to them that um, you know these experiences and you know the the world beyond and the, the kingdom of God and all that are available and accessible to to all of us. Which, of course, in the Mormon system um, has resulted in this strong sense of family, this strong sense of of family research. So, if you're a genealogist, um, one of the biggest databases you can tap into is from the Mormon Church uh, with right. family search, which is beautiful. So, there's a, mm -hmm. a positive flow-on effect from this belief in the afterlife or in in something out there that is bigger than us. Mm -hmm. uh, if we so far we have only talked about the very lovely and positive and good things about NDEs, but mm. the way you're describing it, are there actually cases out there where NDEs have resulted in the opposite? Mm. In for the lack of a better word, in evil coming out? Have people mm. not turned empathic and more giving and more enlightened, but actually bitter to a degree that they now attack themselves, their loved ones or society? Um, well, there are some experiences themselves that um, they're quite rare compared to the positive ones that are negative where people talk about, you know, they just went into this, you know, soup of amorphous darkness, and then there were you know, evil beings trying to drag them down and things like this. Um, you know, it's it's debatable about um, you know what those mean if they're if they're hallucinatory, delusional kinds of yeah. things, um, or if they're you know um, a genuine experience that 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 person, for one reason or another, needed to have or or had because of their actions or behaviors. Um, 
or whether their psyche is is creating it or what. You know, we, we just don't really know that. But in um, all of my research, I've come across very few negative ones cross-culturally, um, which is, mm. I think, very interesting. Mm. But as far as um, negative transformations, um, you know, I really, I, I can, can't really think of any. Um, I can think of some where the, the experience didn't lead to a positive one, but didn't necessarily um, lead, to, lead to something negative. Um, mm. There's one from the 1930s of an American uh, writer called William Dudley Pelly, and he aspired to be, uh, in his own words, America's Hitler. Um, and he was uh, this, you know, far right, racist, reactionary, neo-Nazi. Well, not neo-Nazi because he, he was contemporary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nazis. Exactly. <laughs> um, Call him Nazi. <laughs> yeah, Nazi. He was basically, um, and. He had he claimed, I should say, claimed to have had a near-death experience um, that led to his enlightenment. And he he's, he wrote an article in um, some American magazine of the 1930s where where he um, you know describes his whole NDE in, in great detail. Um, and he says, you know, he he met the being of light and and um, relatives and a lot of sort of typical features. Uh, from 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 my opinion, it goes into a little bit too much detail to be credible. Um, as soon as as soon as that starts happening, it seems like okay, this is this is literary. He probably got this from Revelation. He probably got that from you know somewhere else. Right. Um, so already the 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 more elaborate, longer ones um, give me a re reason for pause. But um, he he also started with saying things like. Um, basically that there's eugenics in the afterlife and there's these kind of racial stratifications and that, um, you know, white people are at the top and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was after he had his NDE that his, you know, Nazi activities actually accelerated. I mean, he started some school of yeah, no, Nazi bullshit, bullshit. Yeah, no, 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 no. Just the way you describe it, that is such a beautiful, um, beautiful, making sense of it see god told me that there is a racial system in which i'm yeah. supposed to be the hit oh right. come on there's yeah. right i don't think um he actually had an nde i think he probably came across them in other literature i mean um i should also clarify that the word near-death experience didn't even exist until 1975 the, the term right. um raymond moody the american psychologist who He's sort of credited with discovering them, and, and he gave them this name. Um, but even so, they've been, you know, kind of under the radar of, um, you know, maybe spiritualist groups and theosophical groups, and, mm. um, you know, depending on the the religion, different parts of the world, Buddhism has known about them for a long time. So um, I'm sure that you know accounts of near death experiences would have been available to to William Dudley Pelly. Mm. Um, he also might have seen how. Um, the power that religious experiences and NDEs could have in you know, generating a movement and and making himself out to be like a guru type figure, um, and it was after this he you know wrote lots of books and got followers. Mm. So, exactly, um, that's the only example I can think of it, and it you know could very likely be mm. be fake. <laughs> very true, and sometimes sometimes people take such a, a journey to become more more i don't know they can market themselves it's essentially a marketing ploy um yeah. there is the interesting story about the the founders of the aa um mm. that bill was actually uh not religious um and there's right. some evidence on that yet here he is all about god etc what these guys figured out was a system how to get drunks dry and so that is where the 12 step systems came in. But just to sell it like that, it's probably a bit hard. But if you now put a lot of God in, especially in the 1930s in the United mm -hmm. States, suddenly that thing sells. So that was a very intriguing, intriguing revelation when I did a bit of research into that, um, especially because I'm, I'm, I'm secular, I'm, I'm an atheist. So I don't really mm -hmm. believe in, in a deity out there. Um, right. So, but whatever you have to do to achieve a goal, uh, especially if it is a good thing, then mm -hmm. I think this is fair. 
that is what happened with the AA. That is what happening in my own life. I can change my language with a dying person at the drop of a hat. And it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if this person is very religious. I can take on religious a, um, a religious persona, let me put it like that, mm -hmm. to support mm -hmm. this person uh, in right. their last hours. That that's I have no problem with that. Not necessarily yeah. that I believe in it, um, but mm -hmm. it is that. So um, you're quite right. So when some people go onto out there onto the onto their little soapbox and uh, speaking loud out about NDEs, um, mm -hmm. I can imagine that this is not often that this could be rather to serve their own interests and their own mm. manipulation right. at the same token i can imagine i mean i certainly had people on my show who were compelled to speak out who were compelled right. to speak out about the positive experience they had and one yeah. person was completely non non-religious and she spoke mm -hmm. of light and something, some energy form out there. The other person became very religious and, and she spoke of Jesus Christ. And But the, mm -hmm. the, the, the scheme was very much the same. So right. it's hard yeah. to say. So if someone is very outspoken, it goes out there and go all, it could very much be their own transformation, their own newfound, newfound purpose, mission. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's hard to say, isn't it? So yeah, I think in most cases it's um it's probably likely both because, um, well, for one thing, in lots and lots of cross cultural and historical accounts, the person comes back and says that they were told to bring knowledge of the afterlife to the people, mm -hmm. um, and this is in fact where um, a lot of afterlife beliefs, especially in the small scale indigenous societies, they actually came from. So. You know, a missionary or anthropologist or whatever would oh, yeah. would ask these people, um, you know, what are your beliefs in the afterlife? And they'd tell them, and then they would say, "How do you know?" They say, oh. "So and so went there, um, came back, oh. and you know, told us told us what they saw." Oh. So um, this instruction to go back and you know spread the news to the people um, is actually one of the the cross cultural, you know, oh. common um, elements of NDEs. So I think a lot of these, you know, best-selling NDE authors, um, I do think they're genuine for the most part. Um, yeah. But at the same time, uh, if they can make a lot of money and get a lot of attention <laughs> selling their books and, and doing that in the meantime, um, why not? You know, uh, exactly. <laughs> they're making a lot more money and getting a lot more attention than the researchers. <laughs> yeah, what's well, about to say? say. So, <laughs> so how many Porsches are you having in your driveway? <laughs> yeah, about that. Am I Toyota Estima? <laughs> yeah, I keep joking. You know, I, I just wish I would have an NDE so then I could write about it from the perspective of, you know, an experiencer and a researcher. In the preamble of this show, before we, we started recording, we too said, no, actually, we are sort of deep down, we are still 25 and that, that our bodies are betraying us. I think we both have got a, a sense of our of our how precious life is and yeah. that there is mortality waiting at the end. I'm not yet ready to confront that. I'm not yet ready to <laughs> to, to uh, do some research in that. I, I'm still researching what I want to be and more importantly, who I want to be when I grow up. Okay, so <laughs> I'm still yeah. working on that. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So, so Gregory, wow. You have had a journey of decades of research because that is obviously that caught you, uh, that movement, that that that. Uh, these existential questions uh, mm. caught you at a very er early age. So here you are. And I've got actually goosebumps asking now, <laughs> where are you going with that? I mean, what are, what are you working on now? What, I mean, this, you are on a path in understanding these things that is light years ahead of anyone else. So where are oh, you going thanks. now? Um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it, it's, uh, you know, near death studies have been going on since, you know, 1975, I mentioned Raymond Moody. And, um, but the cultural and cross-cultural and historical elements just kind of got pushed to the side along the way. You know, occasionally a researcher would come up with a few examples. Um, there's an ancient Greek one called the myth of Ur uh, that Plato related. Um, and they, they trot that out and a couple of others and say, this means that NDEs are the same, but nobody really 
you know, zoomed in on this particular question very much. So, so I was able to, um, yeah, you know, carve my niche in this way. And, you know, and sometimes I think, oh my God, I've been studying this subject for, you know, more than 20 years. Why am I not bored? And the reason is partly because of it's such a huge existential question. Oh. And also partly because I get to move from, you know, ancient Egypt to China, to <laughs> India, to, uh, you know, tribal societies around sure. the world, sure. and Victorian England, whatever. Um, so that's been good. But, yeah. um, and then with my recent book, um, in fact, I'll, I'll show you, yeah. show you this, uh, what, what the cover looks like. Does that work? There it comes. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, the, next yeah. the next world, extraordinary experiences of the afterlife. Gregory Shushan. Cool. Yeah, that'll be out um, either by the end of this month or, or early April. Yes. Um, and so this is, you know, it partly overviews a lot of the stuff I've been talking about today with uh, the ancient world and small scale societies and, and all yeah. that. Um, but it, um, in my new book, The Next World, uh, there's a chapter where I look at reincarnation memories. Um, this is essentially children who remember past lives. But uh, I'm not so much concerned with, you know, the evidence of uh, that they give about the past life and, and proving whether they're true or not. But what was interesting to me is some of these children remember the death of their previous personality. So, um, for example, they will say that uh, the, the previous identity um, they remember being hit by a car and then their soul leaving the body and traveling to another world and meeting deceased relatives and a being of light and et cetera. But then instead of being sent back to their old body, which is now dead, they're sent back into this new body um, in the present where, where they're the child who's narrating um, you know, this, this uh, experience that they had. So um, what's really interesting about that is those accounts correspond very clearly um, two near-death experiences. And there are examples from uh, China and Japan and Burma, Sri Lanka, India, America, um, all over the place. So lots of Native American examples. So that was really interesting. Um, I also looked at um, uh, hypnotic regression cases where people claim to remember a past life during hypnosis and also remembered the, you know, the state between lives, what would be like a near-death experience. And they're also similar, but um, they're so elaborated with so much, um, you know, again, overly elaborate, lengthy detail about, you know, Greek buildings and people in togas and libraries. And there's this kind of very highly systematized afterlife, um, which, you know, to me, doesn't really ring true. It's more like a sort of, yeah. you know, 1940s fantasy or something. Yeah. Um, and so whether those are just entirely fantasies or if there's, you know, a germ of the actual experience that's genuine, but then, you know, overlaid with a person's um, cultural background and beliefs, it's kind of hard to say. Um, and I also look in that book at... at you know, along the same lines that um, descriptions of the afterlife from mediums uh, who, who mostly from the Victorian and Edwardian periods um, where spirits in the other world supposedly would transmit through mediums descriptions of, of what it's like there. Mm. And that was also very similar um, to the hypnotic, hypnosis cases because very elaborated, a lot of stuff about, um, you know, things that really mirrored Victorian or in Edwardian England. And in fact, to such an extent that uh, there are quite a few descriptions of, um, oh, it's just like England, but better. And then the next level up from there is even higher, uh, you know, a sort of more rarefied, idealized version, but it's also still England. And there's seven layers of England, you know, each one better than the next. So this is, you know, the limits of the imagination, I guess, but it's also, you know, they, they can't think of anything more ideal than the idealized version of what they already have um but let me, then guess, again, it, let me guess in such cases they never come back as the daughter of a 
of a, a rural farmer who is shoveling shit for the rest of her life. They come back <laughs> as princesses. They come back yeah. in a in a noble. They have got servants, etc. Yeah. Is that an educated guess? And am I am I far off? No, you, you're you're spot on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or if not some kind of princess, it's often um, some exotic, you know, Native American or. Um, but even then, it's a Native American princess. Right? Exactly. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. No, that's, so, yeah. That 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 always makes me makes me laugh and makes me makes me think. Okay. Yeah. Why are you telling me that? And and what is really your agenda? So yeah. that is. I think that is where the cynic in me. Um, I was a bullshitter, a big time bullshitter. So <laughs> you can't bullshit a bullshitter. Okay. Right. That's, yeah. that's what we say in recovery in, in <laughs> as addicts. So yeah. no, there's, I'm drawing a line there, but I would like yeah. to go back to, to one thing when you sort of think about other lives and the past and some, some viewers might think you got to be joking. Here's a doctor listening to that dribble. Um, <laughs> there is, the problem is in our direct past, um, it's not just that, that our ancestors have had experiences and that's it. And we have to, to recreate all of them. No, that's mm -hmm. not true. Um, there's a beautiful study where uh, mice were uh, in their cage and they were given electroshocks every single time that there was a, a cherry flavor uh, was wafting through the cage. Mm -hmm. So they very quickly realized, no, you don't stand on that blade when cherry is wafting through the cage. So then the rats did what rats do and babies come around and the babies were then put in a similar setup. And the moment the cherry flavor came, they stepped off the metal plate in no time, yet yeah. they had never received an electroshock. Right. So there yeah. you go. So genetically, experiences yeah. can be handed down. And we see that in right. the genetic link of needle phobia uh, mm -hmm. in my field, where indeed that is probably our ancestors 50,000 years ago, they figured mm. out it's pretty good if you don't get stabbed. So if you don't get <laughs> yeah. stabbed, you, you stay alive longer. So, yeah. and so therefore people with needle phobia, I now consider as, as superheroes because they were really uh, bred out by their ancestors to say, yeah. Um, so, there is That's that. Me. So I, I can, <laughs> well, there you go. So I can live with that having a genetic memory coming down. Mm -hmm. What is, is exotic for me and maybe a bit more difficult to believe is that there are memories that now leave a body and without genetic line, without genetic connection, come into a new body. Mm. That's then really where we come into the paranormal, where we come into yeah. the, the the next step of of belief. So there mm. is no cellular connection. There is no connection right. that potentially I can explain as we had memories that are laid down in proteins uh, in the brain. Mm. Um, are there are there any medical attempts to explain such things? Are there is there any brain research that potentially links those things up and makes them actually more plausible, more believable? Um, I don't believe there, there is as far as, um, I mean, there's, there's good scientific research. There's um, yeah. at University of Virginia, yeah. um, there was a professor there of psychiatry, Ian Stevenson, and he wrote multiple volumes, um, cases of the reincarnation type, right. four volumes, and then European cases of the reincarnation type. And he devoted his life to this stuff and he would you know, meticulously research these cases. Or so, for example, there was a, if there's a child in India, he would go there and interview the family cool. and the child and cool. um, neighbors and relatives yeah. and, and just really try to investigate every claim that this child made. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, he wasn't there when the child first started speaking. Yeah. So there's always, you know, one way or another that the, the case could have been you know, contaminated. Yeah. Um, but as far as, yeah, trying to trace memories of a, of a past life into the brain of a current person, yeah. I don't think science has gotten there yet because most scientists would say that's not even possible and we don't even uh, believe it. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Although, mm-hmm. I just go back to not so long ago, in the United States, the CIA funded for 30 years a brain research uh, program. And there's a beautiful TED Talk out there. Uh, I think the TED Talk that was banned in 2014 or something like that. And it's mm-hmm. basically one of the, the astrophysicists. Um, so hardcore, you know, hardcore brainy kind of people who were right. uh, involved for decades in that kind mm-hmm. of research. And it is very intriguing to mm-hmm. listen to such talks by people who know, okay, they didn't have one too many uh, or drugs or or in, in, in uh, or are maybe mentally unstable of sorts, however you want to label that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is clearly, there are people out there who have dedicated their lives to an understanding of things that we haven't yet got a grasp on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and I think it is, it will be intriguing for my children and, their, and my grandchildren to watch this video down the line mm-hmm. when new medical research has actually shown X and Y and Z. And suddenly we yeah. can link all those things together. Uh, right. We are just in my belief system, we are not yet there. Just as much yeah. as, as we have, you know, when was the first heart transplant, 1950s, mm-hmm. when all those kind of things that you could yeah. suddenly keep a man alive. I mean, that is, who are you playing God? Well, nowadays, right. yeah, you have a transplant. So what? Okay, get on yeah. with life. So, you know, things are changing. Yeah. Um, belief systems are changing. Mm-hmm. So I think we've only just started to scratch on the surface of, 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 uh, those things out there and then there are yeah. people like you who actually say well okay let's let's take a scientific um mm. point of view and actually yeah. collate those stories learn mm. from them uh compile yeah. the the lessons and give others therefore a another step in the foundation where they can mm. now step upon and can work with Right. So Gregory, yeah. you're an amazing man and you've done amazing <laughs> research you. there. Um, it Thanks. will be intriguing for me to read your books. Um, so it is, it's amazing. If people want to learn more about you and find you out there, where can they find you? Uh, I have a website, uh, gregoryshushan.com um, and I'm easy to find on all the other mm. social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Beautiful. Um, my book is at uh, whitecrowbooks.com. Mm. Um, that's the publisher who's in in the UK, mm-hmm. and uh, the book is actually on the front page now. I don't know if it will be by the time this goes out, but it'll be easy to find on there. Fantastic, so. guys! Have a look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because you find all of Gregory's handles there. Gregory, thank you so much for such an amazing, uh, in-depth look at near-death experiences. Uh, no ghost was harmed in the making of this interview. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but it is it is weird because we, we were able to talk honestly and scientifically, and 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 you know we are we are both men who are grounded, yet mm. we 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 are able to talk about such things, which is beautiful. There was mm. not a I believe and I know. Uh, there's yeah. not not that the kind of Bible kind of thing. No, there is. There's no, actually, yeah. there is, there are things in this world that we don't understand. And mm. why not talk honestly about it? Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the main points to be made in your, about near-death experiences is um, I'm not claiming to understand them. <laughs> and I'm not claiming that they're, you know, genuine experiences of the afterlife, but I'm also not claiming that they're not. Mm. And, uh, you know, every few months, it seems, um, there's a new article Scientists have now explained near-death experiences, and they trot out the same argument that they've been making for 20, 30 years. It's the dying brain, it's anesthetics, it's uh-huh. lack of oxygen in the brain, yeah. all this stuff, and not a single one of them actually works. And part of the reason for that is because they don't take the cross-cultural differences into account, yeah. because um, if it's the dying brain, they should be exactly the same for everybody, and they're just not. So, so my work kind of... You know, it it challenges both sides uh, because people who want to believe in an afterlife also want the afterlife to be the same for everybody. Whereas um, I I don't have a problem with it being different because as as we talked about earlier, you know, your example of the party, um, you know, our lives are different. And if you think of how how different our life is at the moment from, you know, some tribal society in Malaysia or wherever, 
um, why would our afterlife be exactly the same? So Exactly. Oh, beautiful. Gregory, um, thank you so much for spending so much time with me for, you, for answering my maybe strange questions, but it is, oh, if we don't ask these questions, if we don't ask these questions, we will never learn. And right. it would be a sad day for me when I don't learn something new. So Gregory, you're an amazing man. Thank you so much for being a part of, of my mission to make this world a little bit of a better place by simply talking about those things that people are a bit afraid to talk about. So no, it's cool. Thank you so much. And you guys you. out there, look after yourself, stay strong, whatever has happened to you. It is, it's probably passing. All these emotions will go, will pass, good or bad. So hang in there, look after yourself and live with passion. Dream on, dream on, dream